Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, good Friday afternoon and welcome to the Emerging Issues Podcast. I am your host, Eric Hine. Here in a little bit, we have Dr. Dylan Mangel from Plant Pathology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to talk to us about some emerging disease issues across the state. Just want to give you a quick update on, on weather this weekend. Uh, just pay attention for potential for severe weather tonight in western Nebraska, maybe central Nebraska, and then tomorrow across the eastern portion of the state. I don't think we're looking at a major severe weather outbreak, but we certainly could have high winds and hail. There's even a very, very slight tornado risk tomorrow in the eastern part of the state. I am a little concerned about some places in western Nebraska having some minor flash flooding issues. There's been quite a bit of rain out there in the last two or three days. I don't think this is going to be an excessively heavy rainfall event tonight, but there are some places that could get 7,500 7, inch of rain in an hour. That falls on ground that's already fairly saturated. You're going to start having some concerns for flooding. And there is a little a bit of a risk for excessive rainfall with thunderstorms tomorrow in the northeastern part of Nebraska. So you move later into the weekend, I think we will start noticing uh, some drier air moving in on Sunday. Temperatures should be relatively cool for most of the next week and actually probably quite below seasonal norms, especially in the eastern part of Nebraska, where I think we're going to have multiple days row of highs in the mid to upper 70s. Uh, that cooler weather generally is going to be welcomed, at least by us that are you know, liking not having to run the air conditioning as much. But there are occasionally some disease issues that are a little bit more prevalent with cooler temperatures. And our guest today is now we are lucky to have a guest, Dr. Dylan Mangel from Plant Pathology here at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dylan, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So as I was just talking about in my uh, quick weather update, we've, we're heading to a pretty prolonged period of cooler than average temperatures across the state with a lot of places, particularly in north central, northeastern Nebraska, maybe not breaking 80 degrees for several days next week. And it looks like this is a pattern that might continue deep into August. I've heard some chatter that soybean aphids are, are becoming a bit of an issue in parts of Northeastern Nebraska. Can you confirm that? That's what we're hearing as well. So the, the conditions might be lining up. Um, insect pressure, um, as far as soybean aphid has been much, much lower uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, which has really led to a decrease in uh, virus pressure that's associated with that. But it sounds like we're having a little bit more than normal this year. Sure. And is it fair to say that cooler temperatures are more favorable for their spread? Uh, yeah, that's one thing I can't really speak on, actually. Um, I, I suspect that might have something to do with it, but I would also suspect water has a lot to do with it. And sometimes those come hand in hand. Sure. Yeah, we are. We've definitely gotten wetter here in the last four to six weeks. It looks like a lot of places in the state should continue to get precipitation. So, uh, yeah, that cooler weather regime is probably likely to continue for a little bit mm -hmm. longer. Um, you know, again, it's been great that we've, well, the drought's not over in the eastern part of the state, but things have gotten significantly better drought-wise around here. And ironically enough, it's almost like right now we could use a little bit more sun, some lower dew points. Or are, we, are we starting to worry about disease issues on any of the on soybean or corn? So, yeah, and, and that's really not what we would have thought about through June before that rain started to come. Water was the only issue we were, and a lot of growers were thinking about, but uh, that really stressed the plants, that dry period. And fortunately, that 
rain showed up for a lot of crops just in time, maybe not too late, but uh, when it showed up, those plants were still susceptible and the disease showed up with that rain. So um, Phytophthora is just an example, one of those Phytophthora stem and root rot. It's typically a seedling disease on soybean. And when those plants were stressed, those spores were waiting in the soil. And when that moisture came, they moved right into those plants. So it's actually been a big Phytophthora year as well. And growers just in the last couple of weeks have been seeing that all over the state. Interesting. So it sounds like the rain was really, really good for keeping things alive, but it also seemed like a sort of awakened disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think about it like the plant or the conditions that are great for plant growth are also great for fungal growth. So they kind of go hand in hand, but we give and we take and, and uh, you can't have it all. Why can why not? Why can't we have it all? That's not fair. <laughs> uh, so, nice. what about what about white mold? Are we looking at any issues with white mold across the state? Yeah, so that's a it's a surprising one actually. So, uh, when the susceptible period for soybean on white mold is during flowering, so um, you know starting at at R one is R one um, through R five is in these indeterminate varieties when you might have some flowers on there um those those spores from the white mold uh fungus can move into that plant through those flowers it needs flowers present to move into them so it was really dry in the beginning of that we didn't expect that those spores would be showing up with it so dry and really i don't think they were early on especially since canopies in a lot of areas weren't completely closed they were a little bit behind so more sunlight in there prevented those spores from showing up too. Uh, the problem is it got wet and we have those cool temperatures, overcast skies that kind of negated the fact that those canopies weren't closed because it was humid and, and wet and cloudy everywhere. And it really let those spores spread uh, late, but in sufficient levels that white mold is showing up, uh, especially in fields with the history of it in diverse regions of the state. So uh, I've, I've seen it in the, um, you know, Seward, York, Polk, Butler area and irrigated fields around there. Um, irrigated areas, it's going to be able to move much further south than it will in rain-fed areas. And rain-fed areas up north um, in the northeast part of the state, it, it's, you know, growers up there have been struggling with it for a long time. And it's really a northern disease, but like we're seeing with other diseases, uh our rain-fed areas might not be perfect as you get further south for them, but in an irrigated area, it's going to be wetter and cooler more often, and they're able to flourish there. So that's a big worry. Sure. Do you do you think some farmers are caught by surprises here with the white mold? Just because we were so dry early that maybe this wasn't a concern, and then things flip so quickly. Yeah, and you know, I think there's there's a couple sets of of growers when it comes to this. There's the ones that have never had it before and they're really not going to be thinking about it and they're not going to see it until mid-August, you know, now to the end of August, it's really going to show up in some fields. Um, I don't, I don't know how much spread we're going to have into new areas. Uh, but if, if you're a grower that has it in one of your fields, for example, it could be moved pretty easily. So I'd be watching all your fields if you think you have it in one of them. And then there's also the other side of the coin. There's the growers that have had it in the past and uh, it, it, keeps them up at night every now and then they're thinking about it 
And those were the ones that I received a lot of calls from this spring when it was dry. They were worried that they might increase it themselves or make it bad themselves just by irrigating through it because they're irrigating earlier than they had been this year. So they know that more water means greater chance of that. And uh, But those growers tended to be prepared. Uh, a lot of them, they know how bad it can be. So they, they went out there and made applications during that susceptible window. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully those worked out for them. I, I think I think it's going to be low levels in areas where it was managed properly. Sure. And what, what is a general recommended management for it? Mm -hmm. So there's several fungicides that work effectively for white mold and several that have just recently been labeled. Uh, you can go online to the cropprotectionnetwork.org, or you can look at the UNL uh, weed and, and disease guide, weed disease and insect guide, that EC130 is the number on that, and you can find that online. Uh, looking at those resources, we've got tables in there that really outline uh, the effectiveness of different fungicides on on different diseases. So we do uniform fungicide trials across the Midwest with other universities, and we put out what we think are, are reliable ratings on how these will perform. Um, most importantly, they're just selecting a fungicide that's going to target that specific disease because many fungicides have no efficacy on white mold. They're not going to do anything. So don't spend your money on one of those if you're trying to protect white mold. And again, that's cropprotectionnetwork.org. We've listed those as fungicide efficacy tables. Uh, the other thing you can really do is in season, you're kind of limited, especially after flowering. A fungicide application after there's no flowers on the plant is not going to protect them. And unfortunately, the plants have, in fields where it's showing up have already been infected. So a fungicide application is not going to prevent that. You may prevent some very small level of plant-to-plant -plant spread, but research has shown that preventing that's not economical. So it's not going to pay for that fungicide treatment at that point. Uh, so you're really, you're best off waiting and taking good notes, figuring out where those affected areas are. So next year you can go back and you can put an application on in those areas at the most effective timing. Uh, secondly, if you're going to, if you've identified areas, when you're picking your varieties for next year, Talk to your local advisors, look in those seed catalogs and find a variety that's got a good resistance rating for white mold and pair that with those areas. So kind of pairing those things up, you can get good control on this. Uh, it just takes being proactive and being ready for that because it's going to get the plants before we're seeing it. If you're not yeah. very carefully. Sure. So in other words, I'm, I, once it's in the flowers itself, mm -hmm. like there's not much you can do for it. No, you can't. You can't cure the plant. So it's going to be in that plant, unfortunately. That's that's very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, so I know I know another disease that keeps a lot of farmers up at night is tar spot on corn. Are we seeing some of that in the state this year? Yeah, so tar spot on corn, uh, it it just showed up in the state two years ago. So it's been uh, low levels in the state, and the good news is, in with with in most of the state. Uh, it's at such low levels that it's not going to require management this year. It's it's not going to be at levels where it's it's going to be worth making a special fungicide application. Um, where it has showed up earliest and first in the state is the the southeast corner, Richardson County, uh, and Richardson County and Saunders County are the only two counties we've seen it in yet this year. So it's uh, 
while it is showing up a little bit earlier in those areas, we've seen that it hasn't spread a lot. Now, this has been as far west as Merrick County, and there's kind of a front that far west of where it's been identified in previous years. In, the la in last year, really, is where we identified a lot of new counties. So uh, we suspect that um, we suspect that it's going to show up uh, in those counties again for sure. It's going to overwinter there, and those spores are going to remain there. But hopefully, it's hitting the corn late enough that it really doesn't matter this year. It's not going to cause any yield loss. Yeah. Well, for, so for some farmers that might be a little bit more unfamiliar with tar spot, what are some of the telltale signs that it's you have? presence of it in your field mm -hmm. so it's it's can be difficult to tell uh, especially early on in its disease development it's going to look like um, a black spot on the leaf uh, it can, other diseases can look similar um, physoderma brown spot but that that would be on the midrib of that leaf so if you think you're seeing that look off of that midrib and and try and find a spot you know away from that on the leaf another sign is it tar spot it's going to be a raised bump it's going to it's named tar spot because it looks like someone dipped a paintbrush in tar and flicked it onto that leaf so it's going to be a raised bump the other the other thing is you can't scrape it off it's not going to come off it's actually inside that leaf kind of growing up so a common confusion would be insect frass or insect poop being on the leaf it's also black. The difference is that'll scrape off. Uh, or if you get a, get a damp towel and, and wipe that, it's going to come off with that. Um, as tar spot develops a little bit too, it's going to grow up on the top of the leaf and be raised, but it's also going to show up on the bottom of the leaf. So if you see a spot, turn it over and look on the bottom and see if it's down there too. Uh, that, that would be good evidence. And if you think you see tar spot, you can contact uh, UNL's extension corn pathologist, Tamara Jackson Zims. Uh, you could also send samples into the UNL plant and pest diagnostic clinic. Uh, those tar, tar spot and suspected tar spot samples are processed for free um, for at least another year. We're trying to really figure out where this is in the state and keep a good eye on on where that's moving and and. Um, you know, monitoring those levels. So if you think you've got a sample, send it into the UNL plant and pest diagnostic clinic. They'll process that for free and they'll quickly tell you if that's what it is. Sure. Has this traditionally been more of a disease further east, say into Iowa, Illinois, Indiana? Yeah. So I really just dropped into this country um, around 2015 is where it first showed up. And and that was back in, in, in that um, Illinois, Indiana type area. Uh, now from there it has spread, but with prevailing winds moving east, it's spread quicker in that direction. Uh, but that hasn't stopped it from slowly spreading west. And we fortunately are are benefiting from the research that those states have been doing for the last five years. We know that fungicides are effective, and a broad spectrum of fungicides are effective. So there's a lot of tools available to fight this. Um, it gives us a leg up. But one one problem we do have is they're not doing this research in irrigated areas. Nebraska is where we've got that bulk of irrigated acreage. And a problem is this like wet, cool conditions and under a sitter pivot is about the perfect home for tar spots. So we're really worried about what's going to happen when that moves into there. Uh, what's it going to look like if it gets into those systems? It overwinters here and we're, we're, we're hoping we get a, a 
good grasp of management techniques before it really gets out of hand here in the state. Yeah, sure. Like at least it sounds right now that it's mostly just in the rain fed parts of the state. So Richardson County, that's predominantly all rain fed. Saunders, that's most likely still rain fed. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a very good point. You know, especially the next you know two three weeks are going to continue to be you know cooler and probably a little more humid. But yeah, under that pivot, it's they can generally keep things fairly moist and fairly humid. That sounds like almost ideal conditions for it. Yep. Yeah, especially so. in a dry year, we we think of less disease in a dry year, but sometimes in irrigated areas, that means the pivot's running more, and it's mm-hmm. it might not necessarily be a dry year as far as the disease's perspective on those plant leaves under the pivot. Oh, sure. I, I'm sure a lot of farmers have probably put probably put down more water in May and June this year than they have in some years combined. Yeah. And yeah. So are there any other major issues disease-wise that we need to be paying attention to in the state? Um, soybean cyst nematode, that's an ongoing problem with, with soybean. Uh, it's such a, it's such a problem because you can lose up to 30% yield really with no above ground symptoms. Now, not every field is out there losing that much yield. That's a huge problem because you, you might have unexplained yield loss and you don't know it, but the real problem is, is mass numbers of acres are out there losing, you know, five or 10%. And that's just the normal that you've been living with. So you might not expect that, but, um, you know, soybean yield growth increases have not kept up with corn and, and soybean cyst nematode is, is one of the explanations for that. There's a lot of growers losing some level of yield and they just really aren't knowing that. So is there a treatment for it? There's options available. Yeah. So the thing is knowing if it's there. So the Nebraska Soybean Board funds a testing program that we run here at the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic. Any Nebraska producer um, that sends in a soil sample, we're going to count it for them and we're going to send them that data back and tell them exactly how much soybean cyst nematode is there. That's important for identifying it, but that's also important for management. You need to know if you're controlling these because it can get out of hand quickly and you need to know if the management steps you've been taking are actually doing anything. So we recommend following up, getting those numbers regularly to see how we're controlling it. It's kind of the, an invisible parasite. So uh, it makes it really hard to control something that's invisible. Oh, as, sure. As far as management techniques, uh, we recommend selecting a resistant variety. There's there's resistance out there. Um, talk to your local advisors and look at those seed catalogs uh, for resistance genes. And a lot of varieties have a resistance gene now. So you're you're probably going to be picking one of those regardless of whether you intend to or not. That's just how important this disease is. Uh, the next thing you can do is rotate those resistance sources. Don't use the same one and definitely don't use the same variety every time you rotate around a soybean. Um, if you're doing that, you can pair that resistant variety. You can consider pairing it with... Um, uh, nem- a, a nematicide protectant seed treatment. That's tough to say. Uh, consider pairing that with that and talk to your advisors again and see what's working in the in those areas. A lot of those products are new to the market, so we don't have a lot of public data yet to show how effective those are. Um, but we're working on that. And then um, crop rotation is the last one. The nematode is going to stay in the soil once it's there. You can't you can't really get rid of it, and it's going to last for for many years. So, 
Uh, fortunately, corn is a non-host crop, so a standard Nebraska rotation will, will really work to knock those numbers back. And unless you've got excessively high levels identified through through soil testing of soybean cyst nematode, a single year out of soybean, along with those other management methods, is really going to keep this in check. Sure, but yeah, that's um, yeah. I guess I I didn't I didn't realize it was you know that much of an invisible type of species that you yeah. really didn't know it was there. And I mean, even five percent losses if that's widespread, you're getting a multiple times, multiple years where you have a soybean crop, that's not, that's not trivial. Not no, trivial on the bottom line. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's, it's, you know, this just entered Nebraska in 1986 was the first year it was identified here. And it's pretty much spread to the entire soybean producing region now, not every field, but, but the counties that represent that region, it's been identified in almost all of them. Um, and we can we can do a lot to prevent the spread of this. So testing is also important to see if it's in your field. And if it's in some of your fields, it's good to identify which ones those are. So you can make sure you're not dragging equipment back and forth between them when you can help it. Try and keep it out of your other fields as long as possible. Great. Any other information you'd like to tell us about today? For more research, resources, um, visit cropprotectionnetwork.org. Um CropProtectionNetwork.org. Yep. So that's just a collective of, of pathologists from across the Midwest. We do a lot of work together to build big data sets so we can make good recommendations. Excellent. Well, this is very valuable information today. Thank you for your time, Dylan. Have a good have a good weekend. Thanks for having me on. You too.